Hey, Ariel. Hello. So, have you ever heard the legend of the tree that owns itself? Hmm, I can't say I've heard that one. So, the story goes that in the early 1800s, this man in Athens, Georgia, had such fond memories of this particular tree on his property that in order to protect it from ever being cut down, he deeded ownership of the tree and the eight feet surrounding the tree to itself. <laughs> That's ingenious. But you called it a legend, so does that mean that this could just be a story? Well, that's a little bit debatable. No one has the actual deed, and technically the tree didn't have the ability to receive the deed. But nonetheless, the tree stood until 1942 when uh, it fell. Oh, well, that's sad. But they took an acorn from the original tree and planted it in the same spot, and now it's called the son of the tree that owns itself. <laughs> Well, that's a lovely way for the tree to live on, at least genetically. So why are we talking about a tree owning itself anyway? Well, I want us to start thinking about whether nature, trees, mountains, rivers, etc., have any rights. Or even more specifically, if they deserve any rights that would provide them protection and help to prevent their own destruction or misuse. Yeah, okay. That's an interesting thing to think about. And as someone who loves spending time outdoors, I have a lot of respect for those things and definitely think that they need certain protections. Well, there's a particular river in the United States which has been the subject of a, a lot of debate. And I talked to a couple of people who are invested in its future. When I look at something like the Colorado River and the things that we do to ensure sustainability, what I'm thinking about is humanity uh, just as much, if not more. We've got to work it out where the relationship is symbiotic rather than parasitic. It ties back to our origins and our creator, Mateville, and you know how he provided the river for, for the Mojave people and all the people that live along the, the Colorado River to sustain us. He gave us the land and he gave us you know the river and all of the resources to live off and, and to be stewards. We heard the voices there of Jason Flores Williams and Amelia Flores, no relation, who we'll hear from later, but there's an important idea that we'll talk about throughout this episode. It's the legal concept of standing. And Jason is a lawyer and brings up this issue. you got to have standing to be in court. And the problem with the Colorado River and other natural resources that are being depleted and destroyed is that they have no standing. What does that mean, standing? We're going to answer that question and ask some bigger questions like, does nature have rights? How are they obtained or recognized? And who can provide leadership and perspective on these issues? This season, we're focused on America's rivers and what lies beneath their surface. I'm Ariel Avery. And I'm Austin Carter. Today's episode, Standing for Rivers. On Middle of Everywhere, telling big stories from the small places we call home.
So, Ariel, there are a couple of big moments in the history of this idea that nature can have rights. One of them is the publication of an essay called Should Trees Have Standing in 1972 by a professor named Christopher Stone. He had taken notice of a case for a few years where Walt Disney Productions was planning to build a massive ski resort in the Mineral King Valley in the Sierra Nevada Mountains in California. This is him explaining the case on a video from the USC Gould School of Law. The Sierra Club challenged the permit, permitting this to go on. And the case went up to the Ninth Circuit, and the Forest Service said, look, you don't have standing, you, the Sierra Club, don't have standing. Maybe this is a wrong to issue the permit, but you're not injured. You as a club are not injured. When I saw that case, I thought, this is in a way sort of silly. Uh, this is an important decision uh, as to whether to develop the Mineral King Valley in this way. I'm not sure how it should come out, but at least it should be heard. And if the problem of its being heard is that this club was not injured, suffered no injury, why not just say, look, the, the injury is suffered by Mineral King Valley. Okay, so what's the connection between the essay, Should Trees Have Standing, and the injuries suffered by the Mineral King Valley? Well, it's important to know that, put simply, standing is the ability to show injury in court. An injury can be any harm enacted on a person, but in the law, Mineral King Valley did not have standing as it's not a person and cannot show injury, which is why the Sierra Club was the plaintiff. And the essay, Should Trees Have Standing, was really a piece of legal philosophy at the time. It asked the question, shouldn't these natural entities be able to be recognized in court on their own based on the potential damage done by development? Okay, so the Ninth Circuit declared that Sierra Club did not have standing. So how could the Mineral King Valley have any kind of protection in this fight? Well, it couldn't. The Sierra Club appealed the case, and it went all the way to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court sided with the Ninth Circuit ruling, saying that the Sierra Club doesn't have standing. But Justice Douglas, in his dissent, said, but why not just essentially follow Stone's position? and let the Mineral King be the plaintiff. This should be called Mineral King against Department of Interior. And so the legal concept of environmental personhood was born. And though Sierra Club lost the case, Disney ultimately gave up plans to build there because of all the roadblocks created by the litigation. But decades later, far from the USA, this legal concept finally sees its manifestation as the resolution to a 150-year-long legal dispute. Well, that's an incredibly long time. Where was this? The Maori people of the Wanganui River in New Zealand have a deep spiritual connection to the river, which they call Te Awa Tupua. The Wanganui Iwi, or tribe, have a saying that means the great river flows from the mountain to the sea. I am the river, the river is me. They consider themselves indivisibly tied to the river, but under the law of the Crown Government of New Zealand, their relationship to their ancestral river had been jeopardized since the 1800s. Colonial concepts of property, ownership, legal standing, and quote-unquote progress stripped them of their traditional involvement and interactions with the river. But after 150 years of legal complaints and negotiations, in 2017, the Parliament of New Zealand passed a law recognizing the personhood of Te Awa Tupua. This is Member of Parliament and Cabinet Minister at the time, Chris Finlayson, 
from New Zealand's Parliament TV. The river is going to be recognised in law as Te Awa Tupua, an indivisible and living whole from the mountains to the sea, incorporating its tributaries and all its physical and metaphysical elements. The Crown will no longer own the riverbed, but the Crown will still have a role to play, uh, and uh, we have developed uh, this concept of the role of Te Pou Tupua, where both the Crown and Iwi will appoint two guardians, and that will be the face of Te Awa Tupua and will symbolise our partnership through the treaty. That's so cool. I love the idea that there is a face of the river, someone to give a voice to its needs. I know, it's an amazing concept, and it was a major step for the government of New Zealand, as a Maori MP named Kelvin Davis explained. I think this is the third time, and it's about time, and it needs to happen more, that the Maori worldview has basically been legitimised in legislation. So we've come a long way since that time when we are ridiculed for actually putting our point of view forward. Another Maori member of parliament, Materia Toure, echoed Davis's point about embracing the Maori tikanga, their customs and practices. It is absolutely about time that the law caught up with our tikanga. It has been our tikanga forever that our environment is entitled to its own integrity, is entitled to be protected and restored from damage and injury for its own sake, that it belongs that our environment and whatever, however we want to describe it, is our ancestor and from which we come. And therefore we owe our environment everything, our life, our existence, our future. That's really amazing. After all that time, for the government of New Zealand to finally begin to embrace a Maori worldview and adopt it to fit a Western legal system? Yeah, and on one hand, it seems so simple to think that our environment has a right to exist without harmful exploitation. And at the same time, it's completely revolutionary. But next, I'll introduce you to someone who tried to make that idea a reality in the U.S. Support for Middle of Everywhere comes from Kentucky Humanities. An affiliate of the National Endowment for the Humanities, Kentucky Humanities is dedicated to bringing the humanities to classrooms and communities across the state, promoting literacy and civil discourse, building pride in the Commonwealth, and telling all of Kentucky's stories. Learn more at kyhumanities.org. I'm a busy attorney, but I prioritize reading. Like I, I, every Saturday I go to the library and I check out books that I read throughout the week. And I'm disappointed in if I can't read for at least one hour a night. Okay, so who is this overachiever? <laughs> this is Jason Flores Williams. He's an attorney in Colorado. I went to the public library and, you know, always being aware about the damage that occurs, uh, damage that's occurring right now in our environment to our planet. I checked out a bunch of books about current environmental thinking. And in one of the books that I picked up was this idea of uh, personhood for, the, or let's put it this way, the rights of nature. So I think that's a good way to characterize the rights of nature. Because people, you say personhood and it opens you up to a lot of different, you know, how's that a person? Is a cockroach a person? All the ridiculous things that are coming away. Um, 
So I write about it. That was the genesis of it. And he was reading about environmental personhood around the same time that the Wanganui settlement was going into effect. And he started thinking about one of the most critical bodies of water in his state and really all of the Western United States. I was keenly aware of the Colorado River. So, you know, when we filed this being just on its way out due to overusage. And, uh, you know, Colorado River, the West depends on it. You've got places like Phoenix and Vegas and farming that is inefficient and all of this. And those things don't seem like they're going to change. So no one's going to shut down Phoenix anytime soon. Eventually, nature will shut it down. Uh, no one's going to shut down Vegas anytime soon. And, you know, the Southwest, which is already dry and drying up even further and rapidly. Yep. Climate change. Yep, that's the one. So Jason joined with an environmental group called Deep Green Resistance and some other activists to petition the federal court on behalf of the Colorado River ecosystem for violating the constitutional rights of the Colorado River. And right away, it was unprecedented. The first real big problem was there was no place to file. There's not like you go on, on federal courts, you know, e-filing system and find personhood, rights of nature. This is the subject matter under which you will file that. So it was just completely, it was completely unrecognized from day one. I mean, from even trying to file the damn thing. But, uh, you know, uh, you know, call up a clerk, we got it done, and, uh, and that's it. The case created a stir almost immediately as environmental activists demonstrated outside the federal courthouse in support. They projected slogans on its walls, and the case garnered a fair amount of attention from the media, including an article in the New York Times. But the most Jason was really expecting was a dismissal. But a dismissal with maybe a couple lines in it that we could use. Like, you know, yes, you know, well, there's no current law for this. This is an issue of first impression. It's the first time the court has seen this. However, you know, this, this, this idea has validity because this is a procedural defect of the law. And we could have ran with that like nobody's business. Okay, so what ended up happening? So <clears throat> the thing that happened very quickly after that, once it was filed, was the attorney general sought sanctions against me because it's my name on the damn file. Wow. Yeah, the attorney general claimed the lawsuit was unlawful and frivolous. She threatened Jason and his office with judicial sanctions, financial penalties, and even disbarment. The attorney general claimed, quote, the case itself unacceptably impugned the state's sovereign authority to administer natural resources for public use and was well beyond the jurisdiction of the judicial branch of government. Jason thinks it has more to do with what would have happened if it had gone to court and gotten a response from a judge. So the attorney general was saying that this case would go against the state's authority on this river, right? And it wasn't even within the power of the court to rule on it? Maybe that's what the attorney general was frightened of, is it would have got those one or two lines by a thoughtful judge saying, this is an interesting concept, maybe something to look at down the road. And they didn't want to do that. I mean, they, they were terrified of that because of the interest that had most likely elected them. Okay, yeah. I can totally imagine this would be a pretty big deal. And there are a lot of people using water along the entirety of the Colorado River who would be affected by this kind of lawsuit. Oh, you're right. The Colorado River flows through seven states with millions of users depending on it. In the Attorney General's defense, the scope of such a case is pretty massive. But Jason wasn't really surprised by the AG's reaction to the case. Why wouldn't the system push back when you are directly challenging the system, right? I mean, this kind of stuff is system 
challenging, system changing, you know, personhood, rights of nature. It would have profound effect if ever, if it ever, you know, took root and realized some traction. Okay, so now we have two examples of how this kind of proposed legislation has gone very differently in two different countries. And it makes me wonder if we'll ever be able to get something like this on the books in this country, or if it's maybe just too revolutionary. And I also wondered if, like the Wanganui in New Zealand, if America's indigenous voices and ideas could be recognized and have a role to play. My name is Amelia Flores. I'm the chairwoman of the Colorado River Indian Tribes. I am Mojave, and I'm an enrolled member of of CRIT, which is the acronym for Colorado River Indian Tribes. Chairwoman Flores served on the CRIT Tribal Council for eight years before chairing the group. In 2019, she took part in a unique cultural exchange. The tribe and other tribes in Arizona were contacted by Red Star International, an organization that advances indigenous ideas and causes. They reached out to the River Tribe in, in 2019 to uh, uh, get a, a group out to New Zealand to do a cultural exchange. So it was, it was brought before the Tribal Council of who, who would want to go. And um, I, I volunteered to make the journey and um, see what was out there. And Chairwoman Flores began to learn about the Maori struggles to protect their ancestral river. We had a, a little awareness, not fully understanding the extent of it, but hearing it firsthand from the Maori people and what it meant to them added more to their connection and relationship to the, to the river and what the river meant, uh, the personhood meant to them and how they struggled for you know, many, 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 many years to get the river back. Wow, what a great experience for them to get this cultural exchange. And imagine if this could become a reality in this country. Have the Mojave moved forward with anything out of this? They haven't, but you've got to keep in mind that the Wanganui Iwi worked for 150 years to get their settlement. So while Chairwoman Flores thinks personhood for the Colorado River is possible, it won't be overnight. It's a possibility. It's a possibility to have that. but. You know, so much has gone on on the Colorado River, you know, all the water users. So it, it, it would be a big battle. It would be a really big battle. And, and the politicians there, you know, we would have to jump over a lot of hurdles, but it's not impossible. Um, you'd have to have that fight of um, all the tribes, you know, not only the river tribes, but, uh, you know, you'd uh, be partners and have that support from all Native Americans, indigenous people, and not only in the United States, but, you know, all over the world. But the whole experience in New Zealand was still profound to her and resonated with the Mojave beliefs. It ties back to our origins and our creator, Mateville, and, um, you know, how he provided the river for, for the Mojave people and all the people that live along the, the Colorado River, the Native people that live along the uh, Colorado River, you know, how it's to to sustain us. He gave us the land and he gave us, you know, the river and all of the resources to live off and and to be stewards. And so it just added more uh, depth to uh, our responsibility, my responsibility of of, um, taking care of the river and not seeing it as just a river, 
but it goes deeper than that. And Chairwoman Flores saw similarities between her Mojave people and the Maori. We're all stewards uh, of our land and our, and our water. You know, it's in, in different ways, um, different circumstances is on our traditional lands that, you know, we are faced with the challenges and they persevered. And just as Native Americans in the United States, you know, we all have persevered whatever has come before us. It's interesting how these indigenous groups separated by thousands of miles still have similar fundamental ethics surrounding the stewardship of their lands. It makes me wish we could embrace that a bit more here instead of a culture of exploitation. Totally. The chairwoman sees many challenges ahead in terms of the Colorado River. As with Jason's case in 2018, there are many water users and powerful interests vested in the river's use. But it's obvious to Chairwoman Flores that something has to be done. The river has taken care of us all these years. Now it's time for us to take care of the river by doing what we can and and cutting back. And, you know, it's overused. The the river is just overused right now. And so um, the brakes have to be put on. You know, policies have to be uh, developed. Policies have to be um, in place. And, And... an agreement with all the water users of the Colorado River. Otherwise, if we don't, you know, come together, then yeah, and then we may not have a river. One of the complications for the Colorado River is the multiple states and millions of water users who have a vested interest in its future. That makes stewardship and consensus difficult to reach. Its use is also defined by a 1922 compact from which the Native American tribes were excluded. That compact is set to expire soon and be renegotiated in 2026, but this time with the tribes at the table. Despite these challenges, Chairwoman Flores draws strength from her time in New Zealand with the Wanganui people. For me, it just touched it just touched into areas of, of who I am as a person, who I am as a woman, who I am as a Mojave, who, who I am as as a leader. While they're not crusading for personhood yet, Crit is fighting another battle. Arizona Senators Mark Kelly and Kristen Cinema have introduced a bill to give the tribes more autonomy over their water rights, allowing them to lease out some of their significant allotment to benefit the tribe and help drought-stricken residents. Well, that's great. I know. The Wanganui chief told Chairwoman Flores something while she was in New Zealand that one might possibly attribute some of their recent success to. He shared with me how they believe they're helping indigenous people all over the world, how they're helping, how the Wananui is reaching out and and helping. And he says when the river dumps into the ocean, then that evaporation from the ocean goes up into the clouds. And then with the different uh, uh, streams, uh, uh, wind, how it carries the, the clouds into different areas. And then, you know, when it reaches a certain point, the cloud releases, you know, the, the, the water from it. So he says, in essence, we're helping you out. Our river helps out the Southwest. We're sending, you know, we're sending the rain to you. And so that really touched me when he said that, you know, and we're, we're helping you out too. When the rain comes, it's from the Wananui River.
So, Ariel, I can guarantee you the Wanganui settlement and Jason's case are just the beginning when it comes to the debate about environmental personhood. Since then, smaller communities in Colorado and the Great Lakes have passed personhood resolutions, and the idea has been put forward and passed in other communities internationally. Well, it's a really fascinating concept, and I'm really curious to see how it continues to develop here and around the world. Me too. There are some aspects of it that still need to be figured out practically, like the fact that if a river is a legal person and can sue someone to collect damages for pollution or misuse, when a big flood comes, can you sue the river? (laughs) Hmm, I'm not totally sure how that might work. I know, but how could you collect restitution from a river? (laughs) (laughs) But despite that, as a method of protection and a legal concept, it is pretty fascinating. Absolutely. I guess we'll just have to follow the legal currents. (laughs) I see what you did there. (laughs) You can find images from this episode on our website, middleofeverywherepod.org, or on Instagram and Facebook at middleofeverywherepod, and Twitter at rural underscore stories. If you want to be even more involved in the conversation, sign up for our newsletter so you'll always be the first to know about new episodes and interesting things going on at WKMS and in our region. This episode of Middle of Everywhere was produced by me, Austin Carter, with editorial help from my co-host, Ariel Lavery. Our editor is Naomi Starvin. Our theme music was composed and recorded by Time on the String Sound Studio in Paducah, Kentucky. Other scoring was from APM Music. Marketing and sponsorship support comes from Dixie Lynn. Middle of Everywhere is a production of WKMS and PRX. This program is made possible in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private organization funded by the American people.